Good morning and welcome to our program, Our American Heritage. I am the host, Arch Hunter, and it's our desire at American Heritage to explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. Understanding the history of this great nation is paramount in understanding our greatness. And today, we're welcome back to the program, Beck Stevens. Beck, thank you for coming back and welcome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. And listener, in our last program, Beck was talking about Benedict Arnold and giving us a little bit of the background and her interest in Benedict Arnold. So if you could briefly surmise what gave you an interest in Benedict Arnold, Beck, and your background in what you've done to study this in general. Sure. Well, my interest sparked from reading a historical fiction book with my students. The book was named The Notorious Benedict Arnold. And then on a tour, stumbling across the monument at Saratoga, the famous boot monument that says to the greatest or most daring of the Continental soldier of the Continental Army, and there's no name on the monument. And so that kind of combination sparked my interest. And through studies at both Fort Ticonderoga and the Society of Cincinnati, I continued to dig in and learn more and really work on crafting what I hope to be a very interesting lesson for my students and other students around the United States. I find in my teaching and then my reading, Benedict Arnold is just a tremendously complicated, interesting person to study. And I also found, and I'm not trying to correlate these two men together, to me, he's on the same plane as a complex human being as President Richard Nixon. For yep. all the, you know, the good and the bad that's there with both of these men, it's just astounding to see how much these men's backgrounds shaped them into who they were and what they were. Yes, definitely. I mean, you are what you've experienced today. Yeah. That helps shape who you are. And what Arnold experienced in his early years certainly shaped the man that he became and the man he tried to be. Before I forget, because I'll probably forget this, share with our listeners, because you're going to talk about Saratoga, the monument at Saratoga. Why is the monument at Saratoga just his boot? So it's just his boot because he was shot in the leg at Saratoga. And it's only his boot because ultimately he turned traitor and they didn't want to make a monument to a guy that was a traitor. So, but I think this was the compromise. The monument, I just found my document. The monument was erected in 1887 and it says in memory of, and this is what it says on the monument, the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army who was desperately wounded on this spot. Mm. So So it's, it's, when people go and they just look at the monument and don't know the background of that story, it, it doesn't have any relevance. Yeah. Well, and you, a lot of people would never find it because yeah. it's kind of off in the woods. So you visit the Bremen Redoubt, which is where the Hessian troops were that Arnold led the attack on. And if you visit that, then kind of to the left off in the woods, there is this boot monument. Mm-hmm. So Beck was talking to us about Valcor Island or Valcor Bay and put a little bit more meat on that for us. Why is Arnold at Valcor Island? What is he trying to do? And who is he trying to stop? So the British are trying to invade New York City. And the only way to get there by water is through Lake Champlain and down to Lake George and ultimately to the Hudson River. And so Arnold is in Lake Champlain with a flotilla of ships that he has had constructed. They're on Lake Champlain and they're trying to stop the British invasion. The problem is that they you know, we don't have anything compared to what the British have. So he actually sets his men up in a position where they're protected by this huge island and the British will kind of have to come around the island and 
it works. He's able to inflict significant damage on the British. He doesn't win. And in the fog of night, he actually sneaks away. And uh, if you get to watch, there's this great documentary on Amazon Prime based on James Kirby Martin's book, Benedict Arnold. If you get to watch it, there's a really great scene where you will see he and his men under the fog of night with, you know, each ship has one light and they're sailing away because they didn't want their ships to fall into the British hands. And actually, after that, they then burn the ships. And this battle, even though it's not truly considered a victory, slows the British down. And that is very, very significant. And he is really viewed as a naval expert and even more of a military hero after that. And this is, we're talking October 11th, 1776. So, And doesn't this stop the British from taking New York City at that current time? Yes. So in actuality, then, even though Arnold loses, right. he stops the British from taking New York until the next year. So Yes. Yeah. And at this point in time, you know, so he continues his bold leadership by this point in time. This is right around when the British nicknamed him the American Hannibal. Mm-hmm. Congress at this time creates five new major generalships. And interestingly, and this is one of the controversial things about Arnold, is that Washington does not control the rank of his generals. Congress controls that. And so this is a struggle for Washington because Washington wants to promote him. But Congress makes these five new generalships and Arnold's passed over. Part of the reason he's passed over, a lot of people kind of see him as this loose cannon, that he's rash, he's impatient. And Arnold is completely insulted by all these junior ranking men getting generalships and he doesn't. He actually wants to resign. We're going to see him try to resign multiple times at this point in time, but he wants to resign. Washington convinces him to stay. And so he then repels an attack on Danbury, Connecticut. And at that time, he is given the rank of major general, but he never gets his seniority. Mm -hmm. And so that makes him again want to resign yeah. like okay, you know sure give me the rank but all these guys outrank me because they got it before me and once again washington convinces him to stay and it's really critical that arnold stayed at this point in time because this is when we're going into the saratoga campaign and if we didn't have arnold at saratoga the result could have been very very different and ultimately the entire revolution without the victory at saratoga so back are you saying that horatio gates Without Benedict Arnold, would have not been successful at Saratoga. I am saying that. Okay. Listeners, that's tongue-in-cheek, okay? Tongue-in-cheek. Uh, one of the stupid rules that Congress had that really hindered Arnold was that they were only allowed to have a certain amount of generals from each geographical location. And so Arnold was oftentimes overlooked because of his personality, but also, you know, the generals from New England had been filled. And so he was passed over in the stupidity of Congress or the short-sightedness of them doing that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Burgoyne, at this point in history, he wants to, let's get this thing over. (laughs) Let's try to end this war. So he comes up with this idea of this three-pronged attack on Albany, trying to capture control of the Hudson River wants to cut New England off from the middle and southern colonies that are sending them aid and supplies and money. And so he comes up with this idea that he's going to have some troops come from the west, so like through Fort Stanwix and down, some come up from Canada, from Fort Ticonderoga and down, and then some come up from New York City. And his tripronged attack, Arnold, is one of the key reasons he's not successful. 
he delays the troops at Fort Stanwix that are trying to come through. He, you know, that's hugely significant. And then when they actually meet up at Saratoga, it's Arnold that Gates is kind of sitting back and not doing anything. And Arnold's like, no. And he kind of leads the attack on that redoubt, that Hessian redoubt. And yet it is Gates who takes all the credit for the victory at Saratoga. Mm. And again, Arnold, seriously wounded, shot in the leg again. As a result of that injury, he's going to limp for the rest of his life. He actually wears different shoes. He has to have one that has like a lift in it so that he looks, you know, not lopsided. Mm. And all because of this really daring move at Saratoga. So... And actually, one of my sources that I use with my students is after the victory at Saratoga, Washington at least recognizes what he's done. And in January, we see him writing to him saying, tell you what, I've restored you to the rank you claim in the line of the army. In other words, he restores him to where he should be. And he's starting to ask him about like, hey, how are you feeling? You know, may I venture to ask whether you are on your legs again? And he says, as soon as your situation will permit, I request that you will repair to the army. So he wants him back because he recognizes the value of Arnold. So Arnold now has been wounded twice in the left leg. And actually at Valcor Island, he had a horse fall over on that left leg. So there's been problems with his left leg. Doesn't at home, the horses shot out from under him? Yeah. The horse, the war? That, that horse was shot out from underneath of him. And that, that poor leg of Arnold just took a beating. He went bankrupt, if I recall correctly, his businesses, his wife passed away. And so he's got major issues here, as well as not being elevated in rank or getting the accolades for what he has done, except for Washington. I find it interesting that Washington really understood what type of a general this man was. Mm -hmm. So that source was from January of 1778. And then Arnold doesn't respond to him until March. And when Arnold responds to him in that March 1778, he starts to refer to things differently. He says, I wish to render every assistance in my power that your excellency may be enabled to finish the arduous task you have with so much honor to yourself and advance to your country. Mm. So we see Arnold starting to, you can kind of, you almost hear it, that mm. he's starting to change the way he's talking about things. And starting almost to separate himself from the cause. So that's March of 1778. And Arnold then ultimately comes to Washington at Valley Forge, correct? Mm -hmm. And so what else is there that really begins to have Arnold change his mind about the revolution? Well, this is what you put me on to. Um, this is the Carlisle Commission. So if you start to dig a little into American history, there are things that we simply don't learn about. And one of those was the Carlisle Commission. So in April 1778, after the British defeat at Saratoga, the British were fearing that we might ally with France. So they send a peace commission to the United States and they come to negotiate term with the Continental Congress. And essentially, they offer us self-rule, including representation. Mm. The only thing they weren't authorized to do was to grant full independence. Mm -hmm. And so April 1778, you know, Arnold is aware of the things that are going on. You know, he's, I believe that, is he in Philadelphia by this time, Arch? I'm not quite sure. Uh, not in April. No, he's not in April. So April. he's, you know, he's going to be giving command to Philadelphia mm -hmm. not long after. And so Arnold's thinking, hey, isn't this what we're fighting for? Like, isn't this what common sense was talking about? Like, doesn't this meet the things that we've asked for? And 
So, so just an interesting time for Arnold that here he is, you know, he's been wounded multiple times and this commission has happened. So then in May, we see him though, sign another oath of allegiance to America at May 30th, 1778. And then, then he's given command of Philadelphia. And I think this is really a huge turning point for Arnold. It's an opportunity for him to be restored to wealth in Philadelphia. He's given this huge command. Philadelphia at that point in time was a loyalist hotspot when he's given it. He is struggling financially even when he is put in charge of Philadelphia, but he's trying to raise revenue. And in part, one of the reasons he's trying to raise revenue is because he wants to impress Edward Shippen. And the reason he wants to impress him is that he has his eyes on his 18-year-old daughter, Peggy. <laughs> oh, the plot thick is <laughs> Which I will tell you, James Kirby Martin does not appreciate the whole Peggy narrative. Um, he does not think that she is any part of the reason that he turned traitor. Um, but a lot of other authors do point mm-hmm. to Peggy as being perhaps part of the reason But so here he is, he's in charge of Philadelphia. He's living it up with this loyalist community that is there. He's falling in love with this younger, wealthy, by the way, wealthy loyalist woman. You know, he's kind of sees it as an opportunity to raise his position in life. And this is where we start to see things really shift for Arnold. This is, we're talking April 1779. By May of 1779, he's reaching out to the British. Beck, if I, excuse me for interrupting, I want to go back a minute or so. When you were talking about Arnold goes into Philadelphia, uh, Washington offered Arnold the left flank of the Continental Army coming out of Valley Forge, which is a great honor if you're offered, you know, the left flank. But Arnold said to General Washington, I really can't command because he's now with a cane. He has one leg that's three inches short. Enough. He can't command in the field any longer. But that was the respect, even at that time, that Washington still had for Arnold as a general to offer him that command. So he is then sent into Philadelphia to be yeah. the military governor. And that's, you know, that's how Arnold gets into Philadelphia. And then please pick up with your story. He's in there and he's trying to raise money and he's trying to impress the loyalists. And so. Yep. And so by May 1779, we see him reaching out to the British he starts to give some information to them, feeding them pieces of information. And he starts to ask for command of West Point and because he recognizes its strategic importance. And Washington gives him command of West Point. He, through Peggy, Peggy was friends with John Andre. And so it was kind of through Peggy's connection with John Andre that he starts to negotiate with him. He asks for 20,000 pounds sterling in a general's command in exchange for West Point. And as most people know from history, Andre is captured (laughs) with the plans on him. And so this is kind of his falling from grace. Loyalists are not happy. They feel like the wrong guy is getting hanged. He was very, Andre was very popular. Arnold was not. And so, you know, just kind of a very interesting time. One of the cool sources I found this summer was orderly book from somebody that was in Lord Sterling's division. It's William Popham. And this is in the Society's collection, which, by the way, if you ever want to do research on the American Revolution, the Society of the Cincinnati has one of the largest collections of primary sources that you can imagine. And their librarians are amazing. And so I got to hold in my hands this orderly book. And this is what this guy said. He said, treason of the blackest dye was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, lost to every sentiment of honor, 
of private and public obligation was about to deliver up that important post into the hands of the enemy. Such an event must give the American cause a deadly wound, if not a fatal stab. Happily, the treason has been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune, which I just love reading. Like, I mean, that's what the army's, you know, reaction to this is, is, oh my goodness, like, can you believe Arnold, that Arnold would do this, you know? So it tells you that people thought highly of him, even though, you know, a lot of people weren't super friendly with him. Oh my goodness, you know. Arnold's in Philadelphia. He meets the Shippens. He falls in love with this young 18-year-old Peggy Ship and marries her, who was, what, 18 years younger than him? Yeah. And then Arnold is then offered command at West Point. Share with our listeners the correlation between Peggy Shippen and John Andre, if you would. How's, how's that connection? I, was, I believe they were friends and maybe had been in a relationship at one point. I'm not sure on that. So there was a relationship when the British were in Philadelphia of somewhere of the Shippens and Major Andre for them to make that connection. And then how does Arnold then make contact with the British to turn over West Point to them? I believe it's through a series of letters. I have one of those letters in my lesson is a letter to Andre from July 12th of 1780. But yeah, he reaches out to them like, hey, you know, I need some money. I want some honor. You know, I've been passed over and... So Andre is, well, ultimately this plot is unfortunately found out. Uh, Arnold escapes West Point. Andre is captured and hung as a spy. So from that point on, what happens to Benedict Arnold and Peggy Shippen after he vacates West Point? Well, Shippen, Washington arrives at Arnold's house right at around that time. And Shippen, she fakes a seizure or some spell of some sort to kind of distract Washington to delay him. I have not read widely about Peggy after the fact, but I know that Arnold gets on a boat in the harbor and gets out of there. He goes to England and then he does come back and he, in a red coat, you know, in a British uniform, he attacks Virginia. In Canada, they burn him. So he attacks Virginia you know, as the war is wrapping up, he moves to Canada at one point. Like he just, Arnold becomes this man without a home, without a yeah. country. Because he's turned traitor to the United States, he's not welcome here. He's not really very popular in England. He's not doing well financially. He tries to live in Canada for a while. They actually burn a thing of him in effigy. And then he, by June of 1801, he's only 60 years old and then he passes away. Oh. And he's broke, you know, like he just, the rest of his life is simply not good. When he becomes a general in the British Army, they paid him the equivalent of $5 million to be a British general, but neither side wanted him. I mean, the British didn't respect him. Um, yeah. Obviously, no American or continental is going to respect him. So he really does become a man without a country. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, then you start to think about like what what made him turn traitor. Yeah. And, you know, you start to look at throughout his life, all the different financial issues. Some people argue it's Peggy that for love of men will do crazy things. A lot of people like to argue that about him. Some people say it's just his personality that he was trying to climb socially in life. And he kept thinking the next best thing was going to make him happy, that he was never really satisfied. Some people blame Congress, that Congress sold him a raw deal and that if he'd been promoted earlier, the results might have been different. And listeners, Peggy Shippen was 
if you're familiar with Shippensburg, that's namesake in Philadelphia. When Arnold jumped ship and became a British officer, Philadelphia never allowed Peggy Shippen back into Philadelphia to ever visit her family for the rest of her life. So there was residual effects also on the new Peggy Shippen Arnold. So his life back is tragic from yeah. that point on, on, on many different levels. Where today, when anybody mentions or uses Benedict Arnold as an adjective, it's not ever in a positive tone. And yet, this man was tremendously successful early on in his military career for the Continental Cause. What's the lesson, one of the lessons that we can learn from this sad story of Benedict Arnold? Oh, man, what lesson can we learn? I mean, many people say that if Arnold had died at Saratoga, that he would have been remembered as the bravest hero of the revolution. I think perhaps it's, you know, to not constantly be striving for more than you have, maybe to be content with what you have, because certainly it was his desire for more wealth, his desire for more status that constantly made him make poor decisions. So, you know, And I remember from my readings that Peggy Shippen once said to her husband that if you try to stop the revolution, you are a hero at Saratoga, and hundreds of thousands of people will follow you. And that probably one of the things that maybe finally decide to change his mind about the revolution, yet that was so wrong at, at that point. Yeah. Both him and his wife and for their children, and then for the legacy of Benedict Arnold. Here's a man who had a phenomenal military career in the Continental Army, and for so many different reasons, he's not satisfied or becomes very bitter makes decisions that radically ruins his life and his wife's life and obviously his children. Yeah. It's such Which, a... If you go back to his early years, there's a lot of explanation for why he was like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what a, a sad story it is to see the life of Benedict Arnold and which reminds us all the decisions we make have such long-term ramifications in yeah. our life and other people's lives and what could have been and never was because of Arnold's maybe his view becomes distorted or becomes bitter or be is just never satisfied with the things that he has in the American Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. So quickly, as we end here, Beck, what are a couple of the things or one thing that really helped you understand this complex man even more right, to try to- I think this all reading back. the letters. So reading the letters, he writes a letter to the American people after he has turned traitor. And in it, he explains why he did. And I think that that reading his letters definitely changed my perspective on him, like understanding the Carlisle Commission helped me understand better and looking into his early life, too, because, you know, you start with this guy that he's a traitor, like that's all most people know, and then start to really dig and you can better understand how he ended up where he did. And listeners, you know, history is a study of human behavior. And what Beck has been talking about, it's exactly what a lot of us historians are continuing to do. We're trying to figure out the behavior of either countries or groups or individuals, and not to necessarily change our opinion, but to understand why they did what they did, which is so critical, which is a tremendous help for any of the students that are studying American history. So Beck, your students are very fortunate to have you. They might not always realize that, and they will eventually you know, because they're kids. But I certainly appreciate your emphasis on studying and how to study 
and your presentation of this information. So again, we want to thank you for sharing this about Benedict Arnold, and hopefully it'll encourage all of our listeners to look at this man and, and to study the complexity of this individual and why he did what he did. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on again. It is our pleasure. And Beck just adopted a new puppy. So she now has three dogs that she has her hands full with. So best of luck with that in training this wonderful new puppy that you have. Oh, thank you. So again, Beck, we want to thank you for sharing with us about Benedict Arnold. And we would love to have you back in the future, a lot sooner than three years, if you'd be so willing to do that. Absolutely. So again, we want to thank Beck for sharing with us about Benedict Arnold. This is WFYL 1180 AM, working for your liberty.